there's this really interesting quote in Paul's letter to the Hebrews chapter 10, where he essentially talks about the notion of sacrifice. And so just to kind of paraphrase, what he says is, God is pleased not so much by the offering of sacrifice or holocaust or sin offerings, but rather he is pleased, most pleased, by the offering of a obedient and humble heart, which says to him some variation of, behold, I have come to do your will. Which, of course, alludes to the Annunciation, right? Where the Blessed Virgin Mary says precisely that in response to this invitation posed to her by the angel Gabriel to become the mother of the Savior, which, of course, you find in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. So I want to spend a little time right now sort of unpacking this notion of a sacrifice versus the offering of an obedient heart. So as a starting point, just to be kind of clear, there will always be an enduring value of offering sacrifice in the context of Christian practice. So hopefully it goes without saying. Because what is sacrifice at the end of the day? Sacrifice is taking a small part of creation and offering it back to the Lord as being representative of the offering of one's entire life. So just to illustrate the point, let me kind of run through a few different examples now, right? So think, for example, of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, like the offering of the bread and wine. So here's this small offering representative of all of our labors, right? Or think about the drop of water added to the wine, right? The abundance of wine representing Christ, the drop of water representing our humanity, right? So again, the small aspect of creation offered back to God the Father, representing, of course, our entire selves. To use another example, think about the practice of tithing, right? So what is tithing, but the offering in a certain sense of the first fruits of our labor. So whether or not you offer like 2%, 5%, 10%, again, it's a small aspect of creation offered back to God being representative of the offering of one's entire possessions. Now, we can obviously go on with all sorts of different examples, but hopefully you see the point, right? So the practice of sacrifice will always be an enduring feature, again, of religious practice in the context of Christianity. Which still leaves open the question of what does St. Paul mean when he talks about the notion of sacrifice in the context of this passage from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10. Well, I think what he's getting at is that when it comes to personal conversion, personal conversion is never demonstrated simply through externals, simply through things done on the surface, but instead is reflected in, in terms of what's going on in one's heart. And in particular, what he's saying, I think, is that what is most pleasing to the Lord is not so much that we beat ourselves up, it's not that we stay forever in a space of shame and oppressive guilt, but rather that we have this firm resolution in the aftermath of our sin to pick ourselves up, and to make this firm resolution to do something different in the future to perhaps bring about a different outcome. Mindful of the fact that the only reason why God hates sin is because sin is bad for us, just to quote Bishop Robert Barron. To illustrate the point, think about the parable of the prodigal son, which of course you find in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. So as you might recall, the story begins with these two sons, you know, one's younger, one's older. And the younger one goes up to his father and says to him, give me the share of the property owed unto me, which is obviously a great insult because he's basically telling his father to drop dead, right? Give me the share of the inheritance that is owed to me when you basically die. For some reason, the father gives him the share of the property owed unto him, as a result of which the son leaves and he wastes and squanders that money in loose living, right? But then he comes back to the father. And the question is, why does he come back to the father? Not because he feels bad about telling his father to drop dead, but rather because he's hungry, right? And so you know that because of the text. So what he says is, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. And then he says this, I know, I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, treat me like one of your hired hands. Which is really interesting, because what it says is that the younger son has a skewed image of who his father is. 
And so basically he thinks that my father is the one whose love must be earned and whose anger must be appeased. So the idea in his mind is that I'll go back to my father, I'll humiliate myself, I'll ask him to treat me like, like a hired hand, to treat me like a slave, and then maybe he'll give me a sandwich or something. So that, that's kind of the plan of the prodigal son coming back to the father. But then, of course, you recall how the father actually responds in the context of the gospel, right? So what we hear is that while that younger son is still far off, but he's coming back, the father runs to him, right? So he runs to him, being forgetful of his own dignity as a rich man, and he embraces his son and gives him those things that we hear about in the context of the gospel, right? So he gives him a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and a robe for his back. And when the son begins to say that line, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and he wants to say, treat me like one of your higher hands, the father won't let him finish. Right? And so the idea is that I have no interest in you humiliating yourself or debasing yourself. I receive you fully as my son as opposed to a slave. And you know that again because of the things that it gives him, right? The ring, the sandals for his feet, the, the cloak for his back, right? And so again, he's dressed like a son as opposed to being dressed for a slave about to go to work in the field. And of course, on top of that, the father kills the fatted calf, initiates a feast, and invites everyone to celebrate. And of course, the whole point is that so great is my joy, so great is my joy at, at the reality of my son coming back home that I can't contain myself, and instead I want everyone to celebrate. Okay, now instead of sort of unpacking the story even further, I want to kind of dwell for a moment now on the reality of the father's joy, right? So again, the father has joy because his son has returned. Even though, again, the reason why the son comes back is not really the perfect reason, right? So it's not like, again, he, he realizes that he's wronged his father, offended him by telling him basically to drop dead. There's none of that, right? He comes back because he's hungry. But in the father's mind, like, okay, he's, he's back, right? And that's all I care about. And so as a result of that, again, he has tremendous joy, so great that he kills the fatted calf. And that should speak volumes to us when we go, for example, to the sacrament of confession. And so obviously when it comes to confession, an important prerequisite for me receiving absolution in the context of the sacrament is that I have to be sorry, I have to have contrition. But what does it mean to actually be contrite? Well, it's kind of interesting, but to be sorry in the context of the sacrament confession has nothing to do with feelings, right? And so it doesn't matter how much you actually cry, because again, sorrow in the context of the sacrament has nothing to do with how you feel. It also has nothing to do with you beating yourself up, right? And so just because you're wallowing in shame or an oppressive sense of guilt, um, again, doesn't really mean that you're sorry, right? Being sorry means that you have what's called a firm purpose of amendments. So the whole idea here is that I have some idea as to what I might do in the future to avoid the same outcome regardless of what I feel, regardless of the shame that I feel in my heart. Again, that's what's known as a firm purpose of amendment. And so, for example, let's say you're guilty of some sexual sin. The idea is that, okay, what might I do in the future to avoid a similar outcome? Maybe I only check the internet in a public space. Maybe I avoid a certain company. Maybe I avoid certain types of environments. Maybe I, I have an accountability buddy, whatever the case may be, right? So different examples of having a firm purpose of amendments. But you see, what's interesting is that even though it's true that you need to have a firm purpose of amendments in the context of the sacrament confession and certainly coming out of confession, the reality is that the standard for what qualifies as a firm purpose of amendment is actually pretty low. And the reason why is because the church wants to encourage people to actually go to confession and not stay away because of fear. And so, for example, coming out of confession, let's say to avoid a similar outcome in the future, you're willing to try something that you've tried before, even though that particular strategy has failed in the past. That still qualifies as a firm purpose of amendments. 
To use another example, let's say you're coming out of confession and you have this strategy for how to avoid a similar outcome in the future, but you're really pessimistic as to whether or not that strategy will actually work. Again, that still counts as a firm purpose of amendments despite your pessimism. To use a third example, let's say you're coming out of confession and you're 99.98% sure that you're going to commit the same sin all over again, even though you're willing to try to avoid a similar outcome in the future, that still counts. That still counts as a firm purpose of amendments. And why? Because the Lord doesn't require us to be perfect. The Lord simply requires that we try our best. One final example, and I'll kind of end with this. So I remember many times in the seminary, they would say to us some variation of, in order to learn how to be a good confessor, you first will need to learn how to be a good penitent, which was certainly an exhortation to go to confession often. But at the same time, I think it was also an invitation to pay attention to what the confessor says to you when you go to confession as a penitent. And the idea is that it's not all going to be gold, right? So sometimes, many times, you go to confession and it's just the power of the ritual, right? And so what the priest says to you in a certain sense is kind of irrelevant, right? So it's not that it's wrong, but it's not like super inspired by the Holy Spirit in terms of a game-changing bit of advice. At the same time, there are those moments. And again, I think we've all experienced these moments where you go to confession and it's pretty clear that the Holy Spirit is speaking through this humble instrument to touch my heart and change my life. And so at this point, I want to share with you something that I experienced before in the past as a priest going to confession, which personally I found to be a real game changer. So as a matter of background, I was visiting my mother at the time in Vancouver, and I happened to find time to go to confession at the local cathedral. And I remember at the end of my confession, the priest saying something to me, something like this. There will always be this temptation to look back on past sins brought up in a sacrament confession because it seems responsible. It always seems responsible to live in that space of shame and an oppressive sense of guilt. But realize that what is actually most pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ is that you not look back, but instead that you look forward, trusting and believing that all your sins have been forgiven and truly God has given you a fresh start. And may God bless you all.